live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, my name is Stephen Crouch of the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are the sponsor of this podcast, Heart of a Heartless World. And today I have here with me John D'Amelio. John is a pioneer in the field of gay and lesbian studies and has written extensively on the history of sexuality and social movements in the U.S. since World War II. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he taught in the Gender and Women's Studies program and in the Department of History. He is currently the president of the board of the Gerber Hart Library and Archives, which is a Chicago community-based LGBTQ history archives and cultural center. In 1983, John published an essay called Capitalism and the Gay Identity, and he was recently interviewed for this article in Jacobin by Megan Day. His work has also been cited in the 2003 Supreme Court case that overturned anti-sodomy laws in the United States. He is the author of several books, including Sexual Politics, Sexual Communities, The Making of a Homosexual Minority in the United States from 1940 to 1970. And he has a most a recent book called Queer Legacies, Stories from Chicago's LGBTQ Archives, which was published last month. And but so today I will be speaking to John about his book called Lost Prophet. The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. And I'm really excited, to, John, to talk to you about this, about Bayard Rustin for, for many reasons, but um, mainly because his centrality to the, the civil rights movement. But I think listeners will be especially excited to learn about Bayard's life today as we find ourselves, um, like, Joe Biden is looks like he is about to become president. We are in the midst of a the United States' largest protest movement in its history. Just this week, many socialists, uh, democratic socialists and progressives have been elected to public office. I think the count from DSA so far is um, 28 um, democratic socialist endorsed candidates have been elected to public office. And so we're 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 at a turning point it seems where we're we're transforming this protest movement into um actual politics which Bayard Rustin was all about as uh, we'll discuss. But so first I want to talk a little bit about before we get into that into Bayard's politics um let's let's just talk about who Bayard Rustin is. Um he was a gay black man, a Quaker, a democratic socialist, a lifelong activist and John, when we were talking about uh, Bayard, you, men- you mentioned to me that even though you wrote this book years ago, you you never get tired of talking about 
fired Rustin. So why is that? Oh, yes, that's right, Stephen. I did say that. Um, Well, it's because his life as an activist is so inspiring and so informative that and so relevant even more than 30 years after his death he still speaks to us in different ways today uh you know he was an activist on the front lines of movements for social change and social justice for four decades he uh he was in one way he was very different from many people at in the 40s 50s and 60s in that he was always linking issues before we began talking about intersectionality in the united states so he saw class and race and world peace and disarmament as deeply interconnected needing to be thought of and responded to simultaneously so his life to me and the sacrifices that he personally made um, as a gay man who was also black and a socialist and uh, a quaker so in many ways he was on the margins of what we think of as mainstream society, but it never stopped him. He just kept fighting and innovating and making change. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, you mentioned that he he was he was almost one of the first. Yeah, I mean, he was very intersectional the way he approached this before a lot of people thought this way. Um, and you mentioned in your book that. Um, uh, he, Rustin melded Quaker, Gandhian, and Marxist persuasions in ways that were unusual, if not unique. And I think here you're speaking to like the many identities he carried, and because of that, he had such a unique approach to politics. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, one of the comments that he often made. Uh, especially in the context of the civil rights movement and working for racial justice, he would often say, I fight for racial justice, not because I'm black, but because it's the right thing to do. And so in saying that, of course, he was speaking to white audiences to let them know that you have a responsibility It is your issue, no matter who you are, because injustice affects all of us. And he carried that perspective with him wherever he went, and it allowed him to engage in dialogue across racial and class lines throughout his career as an activist. And, you know, another kind of example, this may seem... uh, very commonplace, but and, but once upon a time, an organization like the NAACP, uh, which was a critical organization in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even beyond, um, it focused solely on issues that were unmistakably defined as an issue of racism or racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. Rustin fought successfully in the 1960s to have the NAACP endorse raising the minimum wage as one of its issues because 
even though this seems to be a class issue, it is obviously of great consequence to African-Americans. And so he was always looking to see how organizations, whether they be labor unions or civil rights organizations or peace organizations, can cross the line of their self-defined issue and reach out to other constituencies and other movements. And this was a a lifelong commitment. And it's a commitment that I think very much relates to uh, his Quakerism, uh, because it gave him a sense of the universal, that we all must be together. Mm, Yeah. Um, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, his influence on King and the civil rights movement? And um, uh, maybe a little bit about Gandhi, too, and okay. how that relates to his Quakerism. Okay, very much so. Um, well, you, you know, Dr. King first comes into uh, the public sphere where he is seen beyond his immediate community with the Montgomery bus boycott, which begins at the end of 1955 and goes all the way through 1956. Well, at the time of the Montgomery bus boycott, Bayard Rustin had been an activist using Gandhian techniques of active nonviolence for a decade and a half. It, it, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that Rustin was perhaps the most experienced nonviolent Gandhian activist in the United States. And that he had expressed that both in peace-related work, anti-nuclear work, for instance, uh, anti-war work generally, but also in civil rights activism. Uh, Long before the Freedom Rides of 1961, uh, Bayard Rustin and a group of other peace activists, an interracial group, did a bus ride throughout the South challenging racial segregation. So with this experience behind him, Rustin learns about the bus boycott and thinks, oh my heavens, this is what I've been waiting for. Uh, Not just something that a few people are doing, but something that a whole community is organizing around. Mm -hmm. He goes down to Montgomery, he meets with Dr. King, And from that point on, he really, over the next several years, becomes a a tutor and teacher and, and also strategist who works closely with King to develop King as a national leader and to help King develop an organizational mechanism to facilitate his leadership in the movement. And a lot of the time, Rustin had to work with King behind the scenes because his gay identity, which was known, uh, was so out of step with the times throughout the United States. But nonetheless, he probably more than anyone tutored and taught Dr. King the core principles of Gandhian nonviolence. And John, what do you think the civil rights movement would have been like without Bayard Rustin? 
Well, <laughs> uh, in a sense, that's a good question. But as a historian, um, we resist <laughs> what are called counterfactuals. <laughs> I mean, mm. there would have been other people, I'm sure. I'm not sure how it would have happened. But, but the way it happened was that a figure like Bayard Rustin was there to help at critical moments with people of great consequence. One of the, one of the people that uh, Rustin worked very closely with for decades was A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Pullman Car Porters Union, uh, which was a union of African-American men, essentially. And Randolph was also what we would call a democratic socialist. Uh, they worked very closely together. And in the second half of the 50s, Rustin and Randolph together strategized things they could do to help give Dr. King a national profile beyond just Montgomery, Alabama. And so Rustin organized organized before the March on Washington in 1963, earlier activities, uh, demonstrations in Washington to give Dr. King a national stage because he recognized early on the power that King had as an inspirational leader who could move the movement forward. And and Bayard Rustin, he he basically organized the March on Washington, right? The 1963 March on Washington, yes, very much he did. Um, and there was there was a lot of you know, given the homophobia of the era, uh, and also in many ways the anti radicalism, the anti left of the of the era, uh, there within the civil rights movement itself, um, there was a reluctance to have Rustin be the visible organizer of this event, even though the idea for the event came from Randolph and Rustin. So Randolph was chosen to be the formal leader organizer of the March on Washington. And as soon as he was chosen, he basically said, well, you need to know that I will be choosing my own assistants and, of course, he chose Bayard Rustin and gave it to Bayard Rustin to organize the march. And it's really quite extraordinary when you think about it that, you know, without social media and all the other vehicles we have today for rapid communication, in a period of just six weeks in 1963, Rustin and a few helpers, volunteers, organized a march that brought 250,000 people to Washington, D.C. Nothing like this had been seen in recent memory. Wow. That, yeah, that's amazing considering the, the size of the march. And I'm also wondering, too, um, were, I, I, I realized that Bayard Rustin was kind of a lightning rod um, and a liability for the movement because of his sexuality. But what about his socialism and... Uh, like a Philip Randolph socialism too was that also a liability for the movement because you mentioned the anti-leftness yeah that was well going it, on in America it was you know they someone like Randolph could be attacked from the outside for his socialism but the truth of the matter is that Randolph was such a well-respected leader 
that you know national political figures would consult with him and he would sometimes have access to them uh so interestingly with in in rustin's case it wasn't so much his socialism that marked him as quote deviant or away from the mainstream what was used against him most frequently in these decades was his gay identity uh, you know for instance just a few days before the march on washington a white segregationist senator from south carolina strom thurmond gets mm -hmm. up on the senate floor and announces that the organizer of this march on washington is a sex deviant and thurmond had been provided with information from by the fbi which engaged in those decades in relentless investigation of anybody suspected of being a homosexual wow and and how did how did byard handle these attacks byard would handle the attacks very discreetly he wouldn't you know, stand up and say, yes, I'm a homosexual. You know, no one did that in these mm -hmm. years. Um, Bayard would just continue with his work. And if, if he was getting the message that we, you know, we can't meet for a while uh, or um, don't give a press conference, he would he would go along with that. But he never, again, he never retired from his commitments to social change and social justice. He always found new ways of working. And one example of this, from the early 40s into the early 50s, he, his job, he was a staff person at the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a, a Christian-oriented pacifist organization that was very activist. And then in 1953, he gets arrested by the police and trapped by the police on a sex charge, is convicted, serves a short jail term, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation lets him go um, because it's so scandalous. Well, mm -hmm. Rustin doesn't disappear. Instead, a secular peace organization, the War Resisters League, hires him. And he continues the work that he had been doing, but in a di slightly different organizational context. And so, again, he never stepped back, no matter what it was that was happening to him. And it, it seems like he always had allies, despite all these attacks that would happen. Absolutely. And, you know, as I suggested earlier, I think A. Philip Randolph was probably his strongest ally. Uh, Randolph never backed away from him, was always there to provide support. And in fact, it turns out that Rustin's longest working relationship really is with uh, A. Philip Randolph. But, you know, for many years, he also had the support of the War Resisters League, which was a left-wing, semi-socialist, semi-anarchist peace organization uh, in which, you know, the philosophy of, of the people in that organization was so out of the mainstream that they didn't care if Rustin was gay. Uh, that's just who he is. 
Yeah, it really it really seems like Bayard was extremely brilliant at building these coalitions, which um, I think you also point out that I mean he was he was criticized for the types of coalitions he he would build, especially as um, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about like after after the march on Washington when. Um, when they start to build some more political power in the civil rights movement. And uh, I, I know you mentioned that one of the reasons you wrote this book is because you were so inspired by Bayard's Rustin, his essay called From Protest to Politics, The Future of the Civil Rights Movement, which he published in 1965. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, very much so. Uh, So the March on Washington was in August of 1963. Uh, It draws national attention to racial justice, unlike everything, anything that had come before that. And that continues to build in 1964 with President Johnson. Uh, A Civil Rights Act is passed by Congress campaigning begins for a Voting Rights Act, which will get passed the following year. So in practice, the civil rights movement, even as it is engaging in lots of protest activity, it is also finding itself getting a response from the political system in that the national government is actually engaged in passing legislation. But yet, at the same time, within many sectors of the racial justice movement, there are those who are committed to tactics and strategy of protesting. They Mm -hmm. see the system as so corrupt that the only way they will organize and engage is in protest against the system. And Rustin, partly because of his work with Randolph, who as a labor leader always had to engage with the powers that be, Rustin in 1963 publishes this article from Protest to Politics in which he says – he doesn't say stop protesting. He would never say that. But he basically is saying protest is not enough. Because as long as protest is the framework in which we organize and act and try to make change, we will always be outsiders looking in, waiting for others to make the decisions and the policies that we need. And so he's saying – we also have to engage the political system directly. I'm not saying abandon protest. He didn't say that. Mm -hmm. But we have to engage the political system directly. Now, he publishes this article uh, just at a time when the war in Southeast Asia is escalating dramatically and U.S. troops – combat troops are being sent. And at a time when within the civil rights movement, um, a new element is taking shape that will eventually take on the form of black power, black nationalism, that is more committed than ever to a strategy of both protest and separatism. And 
Rustin, so in, Rustin in saying this is also laying out ideas that will marginalize him from some elements of the racial justice movement and the peace movement because this is it's coming just at a point where the peace movement is starting to protest with increased intensity in opposing the administration of president johnson and rustin is saying no we need to engage in politics so it was a very brave thing to do that elicited a variety of reactions right as a quaker and a black man having very strong ties to uh, the black the black power movement and the peace movement it really seems like he was stepping out on a huge limb by publishing this article and transitioning to more of a political uh, engagement with the system yes yes and here one example of this and it, it illustrates why it is that his fellow radicals in some ways in many ways began to disown him and distance himself um in the summer of 1965 uh congress passes the voting rights act and in August, the beginning of August, President Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act in a, a public ceremony at the White House. And Rustin is one of those who is invited to attend. You know, imagine this Quaker socialist, gay, racial justice activist being invited to the White House. Well, while he is in the White House witnessing the signing of this historic legislation, um, outside, there is a protest led by the peace activists that he had worked with for two decades against the war in Southeast Asia. And Rustin is seen by them as, quote, going over to the other side. He's wow. joining, in effect, the people who are the ones we're fighting against. So it 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 was you know it it illustrates the kind of polarization and internal divisions that often exist within social justice movements wow you know i i find the the presidencies at the time so you had you had jfk and lbj and they were perceived by many on the left as pretty moderate uh presidents and w- would you say that these protest movements and the way that Bayard Rustin engaged with their administrations, they were able to push uh, LBJ especially to adopt more progressive policies. Oh, well, there's no question. I mean, that uh, the, what, what is called by historians and was referred to at the time as the Great Society and the spate of progressive legislation that passed, uh, went through Congress in a period of about really uh, – maybe three years, 1964, 65, 66, um, that legislation, a lot of that legislation, not only the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, uh, but things like Medicare, uh, programs that uh, really increased uh, social welfare programs like Head Start and other forms of, of community assistance. This would not have happened if masses of Americans were not 
protesting in the streets and in other ways. Uh, and what and so and this is something for us to remember today as we're dealing with elections and who will be running America. It's like change may be enacted from the top in Washington DC, in Congress and in the White House. But the top only enacts change when there is also significant action coming from below. Mm -hmm. So without the protest movements, there will not be significant policy and institutional change that we would describe as progressive or social justice oriented. And Rustin would say that a way to guarantee that there will be more of it is not simply to be protesters, but to be engaging the system directly, uh, to be running for office, to be registering voters, to be engaging with elected officials, uh, even as you plan mass marches and sit-ins and the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up the fact that this is extremely relevant today as we're looking forward to a Biden administration, which is not the kind of administration that a lot of democratic socialists and progressives in this country were looking forward to. And I want to name too, for many of our listeners out there that, I mean, this is, this is an ongoing debate on the left of how, how much to compromise in these politics that we will inevitably have to engage with. And uh, John, from your book, you, you say that Rustin urged for a coalition between the socially conscious religious community, trade unions, and Democratic Party liberals, while also worrying that the spontaneous left was incapable of compromise. So I'm wondering, I, like from your perspective, I mean, Rustin's in a very particular historic moment here. Some things are different today with the Democratic Party and just politics in the U.S. in general. Um, what do you think is unique about Bayard's moment and the moment we're in now? Um, well, you know, I, I mean, obviously, in the 1960s, you were dealing with, uh, you know, this is pre-neoliberalism, what we describe mm-hmm. as neoliberalism today. We were still dealing with a kind of liberalism that was associated with the reform measures of the Great Depression, uh, of the New Deal, which had uh, significant class consciousness attached to it, like they were, whether it be Social Security or the legal recognition of unions. It's designed to sort of raise the bottom in terms of the economic structure. Um, So, you know, in the 60s, when Rustin is urging from protest to politics, it's in a context when, where the government is clearly, at the national level, is clearly being run by people who would consider themselves liberal uh, and would be inclined to move in the direction of social justice reform. Uh, and combining protest and politics uh, will make it more likely that these things will happen. Today, uh, we're seeing, you know, in this year, uh, massive protests uh, 
uh, from the progressive end of the political spectrum uh, around sort of racial around racial justice, police violence, and things like that, as well as because of the pandemic, efforts to have. Uh, various forms of economic relief programs enacted by the federal government. Uh, So in that sense, protest is as relevant and necessary as ever. The difficulty is that protest is occurring at a time when a, a powerful conservative force has significant place in the government. Uh, even if Biden wins, there's a Senate that will be run by Mitch McConnell. So, yes, one needs to, if anything, more more than even when Rustin was talking about it, protest must also engage politics because we have to build an opposition that is elected to office. And I think about people like AOC and Congress and the sort of core of progressives in the House of Representatives that are coming together. And Rustin would be telling us to build on that, increase those numbers, put pressure on your elected officials, even as you protest in the streets. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think, John, you name a really important feature that is different too, which is that the Demo- the Democratic Party now is, is neoliberal compared to what Bayard Rustin was dealing with. And I think that that's what we're seeing with uh, representatives like AOC, who are pushing against this like very corporate friendly party. And I mean, this is, and this is also speaking to um, some of the the anxieties on the left now that if we if we try to build these coalitional politics, we're essentially doing a lot of class compromise. Um, and I'm I'm wondering, I mean, I, I think you kind of answered the question here, but like, how would Bayard Rustin approach this? He would be encouraging people to organize in their communities, and he would be encouraging them to push for step-by-step increases in what government is doing. So that, for instance, yes, you put out a Green New Deal, and oh my God, it would be so great to successfully move towards the enactment of a Green New Deal. But we're not going to go from 0.0 to 100% all at once. So keep moving forward in the ways that you can. Um, And I think Rustin might call it negotiation rather than compromise. Uh, So keep the dialogue, the discussion open and move forward, even as you hold on to and project your most idealistic vision of what it is you ultimately want that doing those two things are not incompatible with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've clearly sh- shown that Bayard Rustin was a brilliant tactician no matter what situation he was in. Um, and, it will, and as we close this discussion, too, I, I have to ask, why did you name your book uh, uh, The Li- Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin? Uh, well, uh, because, uh, and this is a sad characteristic of American history and American culture, 
you know, by the time I was working on this in the 90s, you know, Rustin was lost to popular view. I mean, almost no one recognizes the name or knows who this man is. And yet he was in in terms of what he stood for, he, you know, he was like a prophet. He was holding out a vision of where it is we want to go and how the world that we want to have. Uh, so projecting a future. And, you know, post his death and, you know, removal from activism, he was lost to public knowledge and public consciousness. So uh, part of my desire in, to write about him was to create a little bit more, at least a little bit more visibility for this man. Yeah, I really like that, too, because I think um, for like a lot of religious socialists listening to this, um, I mean, they can probably hear that there's there really is a strong prophetic character to Bayard Rustin that is informed by his Quaker belief that really affects his socialist politics in a really unique way, which you've uh, written about so brilliant, brilliantly. Um, and John, before we close too, I, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about your book that just came out uh, last week. I know uh, we talked a little bit about um, the what you've written about in Catholic organizing around LGBTQ justice, and I thought that was really interesting, and uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, well, the new book is called Queer Legacies, and it's it it draws on the LGBTQ archives here in Chicago, and each chapter tells a different story, either through an individual life or an organization or a particular campaign. So you could sit with it and read a few pages at a time and learn about this and learn about that. And within that uh, structure, there are several essays that relate to LGBTQ religious organizing, uh, organizations like Lutherans Concerned, uh, Integrity, which is uh, LGBTQ Episcopalians, or Dignity among uh, Roman Catholics. And it was so fascinating to me to go through these archives and learn things about the period that I've lived through that I was unaware of. And specifically, for instance, um, with regard to organizing within, uh, among Catholics, you know, the impression, you know, put aside for a minute Pope Francis' recent statement, the impression has been that the Catholic Church has been unremittingly hostile to uh, LGBTQ people. And one of the things that I learned is that in the 70s and early 80s, at the local level, there was a tremendous amount of organizing going on among gay Catholics, and there was dialogue within the hierarchy so that bishops and archbishops and national conferences of Catholics within the United States were really openly discussing these issues about sexuality and identity and were open to communication and dialogue. 
And then, of course, I think it's 1986, 1987, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger releases his a letter to the church on homosexuality in which he comes down uh, in a very antagonistic and homophobic way. And that, to me, had remained, oh, this is Catholic policy. But one of the things I learned is that part of what must have motivated Ratzinger to come out with a letter like that is and declaring this as policy is that there was too much tumult and turmoil and dialogue and discussion going on uh, in the church, at least in the United States. So it was very, you know, you learn a lot going through the archives. There are, history is filled with surprises. Right. Yeah. And I just think that's so interesting because uh, more times than not, a lot of the, um, the, the homophobic vitriol that we hear, a lot of times it, it is a response to organizing in uh, LGBTQ communities. And I, I think that I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up, especially um, in light of, of Pope Francis's uh, recent affirmation of civil unions. But um, I, I think that's about all the time we have to, today. And John, I'm just, uh, it's been a joy to talk to you about Bayard Rustin. And I wish we had more time to talk about uh, some of the other things you've written on, especially uh, capitalism and the gay identity. I mean, that's an article that's been really impactful to um, a lot of people and queer people in DSA and then the socialist movement. And we're just really thankful for the contributions that you've made to um, not only not only the fields of uh, sexuality and gender identity and class politics, but also uh, to race and religion, which you've shown with this book on Bayard Rustin. So I, I really appreciate your time today. Well, and thank you for being interested and engaging me on all of this. As I said, I never get tired of talking about Bayard Rustin because I think he remains very relevant. Right. He has so many identities to unpack with, and different approaches to politics, which is really fun to talk about. So... All right, well, John, thanks so much. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, thank you so much. And stay tuned for our next episode. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religiouссоциализм.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.